Before we start off this episode, we would be remiss not to make a statement in regarding the situation unfolding in both the United States and Canada that was sparked by the murder of George Floyd by the Minneapolis Police Department officers who um, choked him until death on the pavement. We've all seen that specific video. Of course, this is only the latest in a very long line of such brutality and state-sanctioned murder of marginalized people on the North American continent by our police and military forces. And of course, has also been demonstrated in the incidents of the murders and deaths of Ahmed Arbery, Regis Korchinski Paquet, Philandro Castile, Breonna Taylor, Freddie Gray, Eric Garner, and so many others that it would be impossible to name them all. And that's the point. The so many others that we aren't even aware of, only the ones that we've seen filmed and recorded. Of course, in Canada, we are no strangers to this type of systemic and institutionalized racism, especially against not only people of color, but also the indigenous community specifically. Of course, being exemplified in the investigations and commissions of the federal government centering around the missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, which demonstrated the RCMP's unwillingness to give them the due respect and process that they would have given any person, any Caucasian person living within Canada. And then, of course, there was the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that detailed in horrifying depth the excessive brutality of the residential school system run by the Catholic Church and made real by agents of the federal government, including the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. So this statement, while not nearly enough, stands in solid is a stand of solidarity with these people. And if you are somebody who is not one of these marginalized groups, if you're someone like me, you're wondering, well, what is it that I can do? What can I do other than posting on social media a black square or you know Black Lives Matter or uh, the show must be paused or any of this? Well. It starts with education, and it starts with where you live, it starts with where you work. I reckon you're part of an association, I reckon you are part of a family, I reckon you have friend groups, and what you can do as a start, and this is only a start, is begin the process of standing up against and educating yourself and others regarding the types of racism and brutality that people, marginalized peoples of all of all types and creeds and stripes face. So we'll probably have to speak about that at a later episode, of course, as per our usual style. We're about a, a month or so late to, to every party. So we haven't detailed this in the main text, but I reckon it is something that will have to be discussed at a later date. I also apologize for the delay in this episode. We had some pretty significant recording issues that called for a lot of time to put this together. So without further ado, I know that's a heavy note to begin in, but you know, enjoy, let us know what you think. And this is a topic that will, of course, have to be ongoing.
Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Underside, the most un-Canadian Canadian podcast in Canada with your hosts. I'm Mark. He's Sean. How are you doing today, Sean? I'm doing uh, quite all right. We're joining you not live from the third or fourth day of the reopening strategy in Alberta of the phase one of the relaunch. Um, so things are starting to open up. And I think on the drive over here, I didn't really notice too much of a difference with the amount of people out and doing things and going to places, but things are starting to change a little bit. So um, you kind of notice a bit of a different atmosphere. Yeah, it's day, it's day N of phase X. Time is without form, without substance. I am without form and without substance. The lockdown mechanisms has rendered the, the notion of counting days and hours utterly meaningless and I only live by the notifications on my on my smartphone. But I have I mean the the effects of the lockdown and the pandemic still appear apparent to me. It there are some businesses that are permanently shuttered. There are entire industries still on life support with, you know, very, very little recourse that we'll get into in a little bit. You know, airlines, oil and gas, hospitality, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. I think that a variety of health and safety measures will continue to be required. Like the whole social distancing is going to be a thing for a while. Face masks, reduced capacity in, in different outlets and stores and, and what have you. And you would really hope that it would be. But a couple times I've seen people behave a certain way in the last couple of days that seems as if they they can't remember this ever happening. I've seen people shake hands. I've seen yep. people stand too close together. Yep. I've seen this in the last couple of days because I think there's a danger when the government announces a reopening that you may have uh, this sense that things are totally back to normal and everything's perfectly fine. I, th- I think people hear reopening and they equate it with all clear, all clear, everything's all clear. The economy's going back to normal, folks. And we're just sitting here going like, no, we're, we're, it's still, we're still in it. <laughs> it ain't over. It's mm-hmm. just beginning. Right. And you're right. Us. A lot of things are still different. Yeah, it's crazy. And I know that our, our universities, which is something we're a little more closely in tune with, are moving towards um, a more remote hybrid delivery model for the fall semester. Because, uh, you know, you can't have many international students are not going to be able to make it here just either due to airlines uh, being too expensive, the tickets being too expensive, or the routes just not being existent by that time in the fall. Mm -hmm. And also, you can't be stuffing lecture halls with 400-plus kiddos, especially at the university that I'm from, which, you know, it might have been a solid idea to not allow class sizes to swell to that degree in the first place, but whatever, it's it's where we're at. Yeah, um, I think there's been four, five, maybe six universities that have announced their plans. Yep. And a lot of them are looking at mostly online lectures. Yes. I know that some, like like the university I'm I'm coming from, are trying to find ways to preserve the experiential learning as much as possible. And labs and stuff. Labs, practicums, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so they're still they're still trying to to figure to figure out a path forward, but it's uh, it's going to be some rocky terrain. So regardless of whatever the new normal is, it's clear that that things have changed in, in ways that we cannot, are not foreseeable just yet. We're, they're just coming up on, on the horizon. There has been a, a reorganizing of sorts that I don't, we're just becoming aware of. Uh, and the question becomes, will things change 
in a way that the way that people think and relate to each other is different. The way that they relate to their government and their expectations of a government is different. Um, and in the way that they relate to their material situation, does that change as well? And I think another, it's an open question. That, that, is, that is a good one to keep in mind. I think another question that I have is how many of the temporary emergency policies will either stick around in a permanent fashion or will be some kind of inspiration or evidence that could be used to pursue future policies that will uh, be permanent. Or, as we'll get to, who are going to be the people who are going to try and hold us back and try and return us to the way that, that things were before this all, all happened? And ultimately, will that approach render their sort of ideology or their approach their worldview completely obsolete and i I do Mm -hmm. believe that is the case i hope it is the case but that's later on in in the episode yeah i think we will answer that question by the end of of the day pretty definitively i mean more definitively than it's been able to be answered in a long time basically this the pandemic and this response to it afterwards will will be the new the new global kingmaker i think it's true. Yeah, a lot of things are, are changing. I think I think that the the countries, regions, states, ideologies that are able to respond and and use this as a jumping off to move forward will will be set to inherit the earth in a in a big way. And those yeah. that continue to drag their feet and mire and decorate themselves in the in the accolades of the past will be the ones that are left behind and 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 set to rot. It's it's like a um, hegemony shakeup. Who yeah. knows who will be the new hegemon? Yep. And which hegemon will be the most powerful? <laughs> it ain't going to be the states. I can tell you that much. Well, I'm a bit, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit uh, skeptical that they could make it out of this on top. Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing, I was talking with a friend the other day, and you know, on this whole topic of like world after COVID and certain policy things that could happen, I got really excited when I was talking with her about some of the progressive policies happening that, as I put it at the time, and I'll say it again now, I never thought would happen this quickly that I never thought could happen with this much commitment um, and not with some kind of incrementalism. And so if I could just list them, the ones that I've seen happen in multiple different states um, is housing the homeless to some extent, Mm -hmm. versions of UBI, uh, a very strongly demonstrated need for public health care, government spending to create jobs or to replace wages, um, and and all these kinds of things coming together at the same time uh, that, that can lead to all kinds of progressive solutions. So, I mean, just to start with the UBI one, I think if you're listening to this podcast, you'll be familiar with the, some people call it the CERB, some people call it the CURB, the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit. And this is a version of like a wage uh, supplement that uh, if you've lost your job, you're going to get the CERB. And I really quickly wanted to touch on an article from Business Business Insider, which talks about, you know, a lot of nations have put forward some kind of response benefit like this, other than the United States, because theirs sucks, uh, for working people to get some kind of wages. And in Spain, uh, the Minister for Economic Affairs actually has said that the government is going to commit to making this permanent. So they've put in this kind of UBI instrument to replace lost wages from lost jobs. And they say they'll find a way to make this, quote, a permanent instrument. So I find that fascinating. And the Pope followed up saying also that, uh, strangely enough, Pope Francis, I guess he's kind of a radical sometimes. He did say that we should consider UBI 
to value people's work. And um, so, yeah, I'm just thinking about it. I mean, with the dollar amount of the CERG on record um, and just kind of this experiment, we can use it and its results to estimate whether UBI will be possible in the future. It's kind of like a reference. And I think that experiment is is the right term for it because something at this scale has certainly not been attempted in, in at least in Canada in my lifetime. And the last time we heard about UBI, it was these small little experiments. There's like one in Ontario. Finland is notable for, for attempting something like this. We, we hear about these little little experiments. These dip your toe in the water and, and see if um, it, it, what the effect might be. And I think it's um, it's a great word for it because this is really a testament to modern monetary theory. And the thing with modern monetary theory, and I'll just recap, I'm not an economist, I'm not a business type at all, but my understanding of it is basically that because if you have a government, you have a state that produces its own currency, then the thing that gives that currency value is the fact that the government will collect it in the form of taxes, which is sort of based on the economic activity of of the state. And so this ties into ideas of fiat currencies, which almost every currency on earth is a fiat currency. It doesn't have any intrinsic value. It's not you can't go to the bank and trade in your dollar dollar bills for for gold coins. They, right? they call it a floating exchange rate has mm-hmm. been the, the way that the exchange rates have worked since uh, the gold standard was abandoned. And although I I also am not extremely well versed in, in economics, I do know that this is the reason that central banks hold foreign reserve funds. So they'll they'll hold a certain amount of foreign funds to control demand and supply and control the floating exchange rate. Exactly. It's it's quite complicated. And and ultimately, it's it's one of these social constructions. It's it's a perfect example of how humans utilize, um, and I'm drawing off of Yuval Harari and his his great book, Sapiens, for this. It's a great example of how humans utilize myth to get their societies to operate. We kind of operate off of, of a faith that since everybody accepts money, we can all rely upon it to use it, and therefore collecting it is valuable for what we can do with it. Uh, there's obviously problems with that too, but you know, interesting to note. So it's a great example of of how up in the air a lot of this stuff is, and why it's an experiment functionally in, in our culture. And so, of course, there have been some detractors. There's been a bunch of these, and anybody who's listened to this podcast knows that um, we have. Um, it's not that we don't have any love for libertarians; we just don't respect them. Um, a bunch of libertarian types are whining about the debt to GDP ratio um, while simultaneously offering no alternative alternative strategies or solutions, which is pretty on brand for them. Um, there's been a bunch of Tories, most notably the premier from Prince Edward Island, which um, just to take a step back, like, dude, you, you run a province that's the size of a city. Like, how about you pump your fucking brakes for half a moment? Um, and whining about how this policy will disincentivize people from re-entering the labor market. And first of all, they're seemingly oblivious to the massive spike in unemployment. And they're also probably concerned that once minimum wage workers get a taste for something like this, they're going to need a little bit more incentive to go back into their dead-end minimum wage paying jobs because they're going, wow, I'm making $400 less a month and I don't have to deal with my shitty retail job. So maybe that's going to drive some conversations about how how workers are treated and, and how much they actually should probably be be paid. Because they are getting a pretty raw deal. 
getting a pretty freaking raw deal, in my opinion. Um, um, yeah, it's uh, it's not as bad as the states and their minimum wage, yeah. but it's still unacceptable. But but both of these stances are untenable and just kind of bullshit. Because could you imagine if um, if we had a conservative majority government in in power in Ottawa right now? Like we we would have been fucked. <laughs> a couple of my friends and I, my friend who has a double major undergrad in economics and poli sci, made the exact same comment to me yesterday. Actually, ah yes. Yeah, we're talking about the whole COVID response. Yeah, and like, cause like again, I a lot of this is like being equated to the liberals and the prime minister and all this and all that, and that's kind of true. But it's it's the most common uh, trope in Canadian modern Canadian political history where a, a, a centrist broker party, which is the Liberals, running a minority government seems to get a lot of shit done because it can pretty much be strong-armed by the minority parties or the other parties in the government to, 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 to do something a little more, you know, a little more progressive. I mean, that's how we got healthcare with the whole Tommy Douglas thing, right? Because mm-hmm. the Liberals had a minority government and they had to broker in order to get any laws passed. So they had to give a little bit. So I hesitate to give them too much credit because really if they ended up falling on kind of this more conservative Tory side of the issue, uh, they probably ran a huge risk of getting obliterated by the ed- from the um, anybody but conservative movement that they've benefited from and what led to their most recent majority government a little while ago 2015 that's when that was wasn't it something like that i think that's when they got the the majority yes um yeah the i mean it's kind of i think it's one of these opportunities for us to say we're not as bad as the american situation because (laughs) the republicans have been I mean, I think you could say evil on this subject with the way they talk about the wage subsidies, which they never put in, and the uh, the bailout, which was very small in the United States. At least the conservatives in Canada compromised at some level on this policy, and they did help to, to get it through. Um, and they do agree with parts of it. And uh, But of course, they concerned about disincentivizing labor uh, markets. They would put in certain... Uh, uh, phrases in the application like, I guarantee that I am still seeking work while taking this uh, grant money. And so, so they're, I mean, they're, they're not really having an appropriate response to this, I don't think, but their Republican response is significantly more inappropriate. Well, and, and enabled by, by the de- Democrats under, under Nancy Pelosi. Because Absolutely. they, they also have like no teeth and no, no, wherewithal or willingness to even make like first of all the wage subsidy or not the wage subsidy but the uh kind of the twelve hundred dollar grant that was from the republican side that didn't even come from the democrats right because they're trying to keep trying to prompt this populist wave but the reality is is, is that the, at least the establishment democrats they are republicans they they are the same that the same party they're the, of the same ecosystem. They they need each other to make it work to keep the corrupt plutocracy operating. Yeah, absolutely. I um I, I'm very disturbed about the American situation. It's like but, it's like every shitty reality TV show that you've watched, where it's just like some shallow, vapid couple that is like way over tanned and and speaks in hella valley hella valley accent. It's just like they're perfect for each other. The Democrats, the Republicans. They were made for each other. They are just horrible enough for each other. The Democrats are, are the spineless enablers and the Republicans are the cold-blooded psychopaths. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, oh man, it's why, it's, 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 it's why I always say 
that the Democrats are far to the right of any Canadian political party. <laughs> I mean, it's just abysmal. And all, often why I also say Bernie Sanders is like a regular Canadian politician running in an American uh, situation under an American paradigm. Yeah. Which makes him, you know, quite strong indeed because most of them aren't willing to do that. Yeah, so, I mean, I've compared this bailout to UBI, and I just really quickly wanted to touch on some Canadian advocates for UBI. And, you know, a good example of how our conservatives are not like the Republicans, there's actually a a fairly prominent um, supporter of UBI, conservative senator Hugh Segal, uh, who actually wrote a book on why he supports a UBI. Bootstraps need boots. Uh, Subtitle is One Tory's Lonely Fight to End Poverty (laughs) in Canada. And indeed, there was also, um, back when the Ford government tried to cancel a previous UBI project in Ontario, put in by the Liberals, he got in, goes to cancel it. 120 CEOs, presidents and owners of Canadian companies asked him to reconsider. Um, Ultimately, uh, he denied uh, that request. But there are significant like business side and conservative side people in Canada who support the UBI plan. So I think... It's worth a chance, uh, worth a shot. It's worth an experiment. We can see how this one goes. Just to give you some numbers, um, our current like CERB is $25 billion out of a $340 billion federal uh, budget. So it's a big chunk, but it's not. It's a big experiment, yeah. It's not um, completely impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you got the NDP, you've got this one conservative senator, you've got some business leaders, and to me, it sounds like a pretty realistic uh, thing to try out. To to play devil's advocate for a moment on that part, because this is this is a pretty common criticism when the the owners of companies and CEOs, uh, especially in our sort of like more laissez-faire uh, capital context, where you always have to ask yourself: Are they advocating for it because they believe in it? Or are they advocating for it because it means they can provide their staff with less benefits and lower pay and expect the government to pick up the tab for it kind of the way in like how... Walmart. Yeah, like how Walmart in the States actually costs the government a ton of money, also not only in lost tax revenue, but also because a lot of their workers end up on government programs, such as food stamps as an example, or like, you know, subsidized housing or things because they literally don't make enough to live. The minimum wage is not a living wage. So I always ask, is this because they believe in it or because they believe they can benefit from it? And I'm, I'm a cynic when it comes to these sorts of things, admittedly. It's um, probably one of my um, biggest character flaws. And <laughs> it's uh, that I don't, I don't trust, I don't trust private, private businesses. As a general rule, I just don't because the profit motive is... Um, uh, corrupting. It, it's, it's, it's corrupting and in absentia of, of morality or ethics. Because when it's all about getting one number to tick up in a bank account, everything else is, is secondary. Yeah, it's... Uh, That's why you can have sweatshops that collapse and kill thousands of people in Bangladesh. Nobody bats a fucking eye. The, the end justifies the means, so they'll do it at all costs, mm-hmm. right? It's like the worst form of consequentialism. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> it's, like a, it's like a bizarre marrying of utilitarianism and consequentialist thought that it births this this horrible vehicle. Yeah. No wonder pragmatism is attributed most often to American philosophers. Yeah. 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 Um, just to touch on a couple other COVID response things that make us better, dare I say, than the United States. Um, the wage subsidy... As if we ever had a doubt. <laughs> I mean, sometimes I get a little bit skeptical, but... I think there's there's some real shining moments coming we, out of we, this. We are the 51st state, but we're more of a California than an Alabama, if you catch my drift. 
Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I like that. Um, and this this crisis has really put that into perspective. We have a wage subsidy, okay? Just like a lot of Western Europe, we put in a wage subsidy that the Americans that have a, still refused to put in. That idea was a Denmark invention, wasn't it? A Danish they were invention. one of the first to get yeah. to it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. And, and a lot of Western Europe followed suit, uh, Denmark being one of the first, I believe. And uh, mm-hmm. now we've followed along. I think we gave a certain wage subsidy to ordinary people. And then for students, they actually get an even larger wage subsidy. I don't know if it's a wage subsidy. I think it's just a grant. They get both. Oh, nice. Okay. They have both. Okay. So there's okay. the student wage subsidy and the student uh, relief Oh, benefit. yeah, that's right. That's right, where it's like they'll do like 100% of a student worker's wages. I want to say 75 I think 75 is the first one, and then the student one's 100%. It's it's close to that. It's a lot. Not it's a lot. Yes, it, you're right. Yeah, it yeah, gives yeah. them a big competitive yeah, edge. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, I mean, USA hasn't done this. Every other developed Western European nation and Canada that has faced unemployment problems has done this. Um, I think it's honestly, pardon my language, it's fucking crazy of them. Well, completely insane. Well, it makes sense if you it, it's crazy if you think of them as a democracy. It makes <laughs> yeah. perfect sense if you think of them as a plutocracy. Yeah. And yeah. Or and an I, oligarchy or something. And that fits into, I think, the difference with the Canadian consumer focused relief and the American contrasting producer focused relief. I would use worker versus capital. Sure. Relief, personally, but only because I'm coming from from that side of the tracks. Yeah, and so with our worker-focused relief, you get two thousand dollars a month, where in the United States you get twelve hundred dollars one time. Yeah, and then America's <laughs> bailing out industry like mad. Yeah, like the cruise ship industry. Who the fuck needs cruise ships? Yeah, <laughs> that was insane. Like airlines, like whatever, oil and gas. That's kind of par for the course. But cruise ships, it's insane stupid cruise ship shouldn't exist and then they sink so much into the stock market that, that, that when it devalues they lose the investment that they just put in almost <laughs> you, instantaneously you can, you can see the I, I went and looked in this you can see the little bump on both the s&p 500 and the dow jones industrial average at the beginning of march when that happened and they just vaporized a trillion dollars immediately they just plunked it in gone and it still hasn't recovered it's brutal brutal and you were telling brutal. me about how another difference is that we've resisted some of like the tarp style bailout ha, ha. stuff. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So what we would call this, so there, there's a type of bailout, there's different types, but this one is called a troubled asset relief program. And basically what it means is that the government will buy the assets at its own cost and give the company the money back to kind of restart things. And then those just kind of like, go away right like you just kind of like figure out what to do with them secondary to to the rest of the economic recovery uh, but insofar the canadian government has resisted calls to do such a style of bailout um specifically because we know that it doesn't work and they're instead offering these bridge loans in lieu of this american style bailout um so i have a quote here the large employer emergency financing facility also known as LEAF, will provide support to employers with annual revenues of more than $300 million whose credit needs aren't being met through conventional financing. So basically, it's intended as this final backstop of funding from the feds if a large business has exhausted all of its options with private lenders. Um, there, there are some extensive conditions attached to, to these loans. 
I like the name. Leaf. Yeah. yeah. So uh, Finance Minister Bill Morneau uh, said applicant companies must disclose their climate action plans and sustainability goals in order to qualify. They must meet other conditions as well, including not paying their executives excessive salaries. So I have a quote from uh, Finance Minister Morneau here. Among the conditions are making sure that there are no share buybacks or dividends, or excessive executive pay, but also that companies have financial disclosures on their climate situation and that they're part of our long-term sustainability goals, Hmm. which is excellent. These are all the strings that you need attached to something like this, and you can definitely sort of sense um, the federal NDP's uh, uh, influence on this, probably to extend the block as well, but this seems like more like an NDP thing. And Jagmeet Singh, the leader of the federal NDP, came out and and actually stated that this is obviously required, and this is even before this was announced, that any government money that goes to a private business needs to be uh, have many strings attached. Because when you don't attach the strings, it just ends up with the CEOs, it ends up with the shareholders, which is exactly what happened in 2008 with the financial sector crash with Wall Street. And that's when TARP was rolled out. That right? was a TARP-style bailout, and it fucking failed. And actually, um, I'll just take a moment to say... And that's why anybody who says that Obama was a good progressive president, you, you're a fucking rube. You're an idiot if you think Obama was a progressive. One of this the, is a progressive policy. One of the many reasons Obama was not a progressive yeah, president. Yeah. Um, oh, I, I'm going to take the chance to say this. Thanks, Obama. yeah so um yeah yeah and that's a really important thing and also companies that have been found guilty of tax evasion are also disqualified lovely which sounds good um but there are many corporate entities that are still engaged in tax evasion that are being uh that have not been convicted yet that are being investigated or they've signed sweetheart deals with the cra the canadian revenue agency to avoid being labeled as tax evaders so there's there's some it's not comprehensive but you know whatever um, or at least uh, there's some kind of provision, but I take that point. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. This is similar. This is shared with a lot of other Western European nations who are doing a similar kind of uh, support. Yeah, uh, they'll they'll exclude these uh, uh, tax dodging companies, which you know, yeah, good enough. Yeah, and so as you can probably imagine, with this, uh, Andrew Shear, who is the interim leader of the federal CPC, who is not seeking uh, leadership again, because, chocolate milkman. Yeah, chocolate milkman. Um, because why, sorry? <laughs> why is he not seeking leadership? Uh, because he absolutely butchered a federal level campaign to seize the power from the liberals. Among when other Trudeau things. was like at his weakest. Yeah, too. exactly. When SNC Lavalin was in full swing, when the you know uh, there was still a lot of the indigenous land right situation that was very touchy. Uh, there was obviously a sense of Western alienation, which I've noticed is a topic that's totally dropped out of the media because it's a bullshit artificial cover for demented capital nativism and uh, victim complexes. So there's that. Persecution complexes. Well, it depends. When you want money from the federal government, then yeah. you're not going to mm-hmm. want to separate mm-hmm. anymore. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. doesn't matter that you had one of the most valuable resources and you squandered all of the wealth from it. Um, but yeah, so back to Andrew Scheer. Uh, a man with uncomfortably close ties to the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers took the opportunity to bitch and moan that the loan program was inadequate and not the industry-specific package for oil and gas that was, that was promised. 
Boo-hoo, you corrupt dork. Take a long walk over a short pier overlooking a goddamn volcano. Nobody gives a shit what you have to say. Not even your fellow conservatives. You're on the way out. You're done, son. Bye-bye. Um, Can I take a minute to shit on cheer, actually? I, I mean, I don't see why not. Even though um, it gets cut. Although, although you know, he's... What's funny about Sheer is he's not even n- notorious. He's yeah. such a lame politician. Yeah, Captain Cardboard. He, exactly. <laughs> he hardly even gets the benefit of yeah. being shit on. Um, I, I do want to... I'll open this riff by saying that when I was in Ottawa doing some Advo work, um, I, I, saw, I was overlooking uh, the, 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 the side of, um, of the conservative sort of block there in, in the parliament, and I saw Sheer writing his notes. He was scrawling these like huge letters, like just everywhere. He managed to fill half a page <laughs> with maybe like a sentence or two of content, right? Like, just like chi- childlike writing and grandstand. I don't even remember what he said because he's so forgettable. <laughs> but this is the man who took party funds to buy a minivan and to put his kids through private school. Yes, I remember that. Which is just about the, the whitest combination of corruption that I can think of. I need the minivan to bring them to soccer practice and to drop them off at the boarding school where they're going to learn how to play polo. There's his corrupt <laughs> dealings with the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, which included a retreat prior to the federal campaign that actually probably sunk him to a degree in the East, I would guess. Um, and then actually just recently, I wanted to point out, no, this isn't necessarily sheer, but this is part of his party that he's been leading for the last four years. But I bet you it is sheer mismanagement. <laughs> oh, God. Um, the CBC Twitter so account <laughs> was tweeting that the federal government was turning a blind eye to Serb fraud. And it featured a picture of Carla Qualtro, who is the Minister of Employment, Workforce Development, and Disability Inclusion, who is visually impaired and legally blind. Oh. <laughs> they said that the government was turning a blind eye and featured a picture of a legally blind minister. Holy shit. Tasteless doesn't quite quite explain it. And that was them saying that CERB is not being well regulated enough, yeah, basically? Yeah, <laughs> basically making a claim based off of a National Post article, and we all know what we think of the National Post. Um, they were basically claiming that the federal government was just saying to rubber stamp every CERB application, which is not true because they have your tax information. Yeah. Because even if you, if you get caught in an investigation after the fact, you have to repay it. So Did you see the tweet about the guy's horses? This guy said his friend sent up his horses for the CERB. Oh, yeah. And, like, it worked. But then someone called him out because you need a SIN, sin number. And a bank account. Yeah. <laughs> and they were like, well, how did you get a SIN for your yeah. horses? Yeah, conservatives are, especially that kind of conservative, are their own breed. Yeah. Their own breed, their well, own the, type. It's the Trudeau, dement, uh, what is it, Trudeau demented sy- syndrome? Yeah, The thing probably. they say about... About people who can't uh, control their partisan hate for him. Yeah, exactly. I forget the the word they use, but it's it's uh, it's just constant anger for no reason. It wouldn't matter what he did or what he didn't do, right? Exactly. You know, another thing that I really like that COVID proves, and unfortunately, a big part of what proves this is a death toll in a certain country. But I think a nice aspect of of the things that we can learn from COVID is that public funding needs to be robust. I think this crisis has definitively proved that. Um, government stocking up on emergency supplies, having a steady you know, revenue stream for medical purposes, having preparedness plans. 
in a way, everyone would think that it's crazy for a government would implement some kind of emergency supplies stockpiling or planning until something like this happens. And then it becomes obvious that we need it. So, uh, yeah, I've kind of noticed that throughout this money in the hands of private actors is not nearly as useful as government money. To say the least. And I think what what would have been nice. So everybody remembers back when the United Conservative Party uh, came into power uh, last year. One of the very first things that they, they sought to, to establish was the job creation tax cut. Uh, that's insofar cost us, you know, by, by my sort of back of the envelope math, about $1.2 billion in public revenues. And now all those companies benefited initially and were laying off staff before this entire crisis happened. Uh, but now they're posting absolutely huge losses and are laying off even more staff. I bet we could have used that $1.2 billion for something a little more important, like for personal protective equipment that doesn't dissolve your flesh, uh, but whatever. And that was that whole situation with those Vanch masks after the UCP gave away our PPE stockpiles to BC, Ontario, and Quebec, and then bought a bunch of social media advertisements for it to capitalize off of it, and then left our medical personnel with substandard equipment. And on top of all of that, then just recently, uh, the finance minister, Travis Taze, approved the borrowing of $25 billion uh, to help restart the economy, as they put it. And part of the rationale for that was they cited the loss of government revenues from the tax cut as a reason why they needed to borrow the money. And our deficit's at like, what, $20 billion now? It's going to be this year. They trebled it? Yeah. Fuck. Yeah, and so I think that that's kind of a good point because if Canada is doing very well because of public health care, and for example, Germany is doing very well because of public health care. South Korea! South Korea is doing very well because of public health care. Then we should consider ourselves very lucky that this struck at the beginning of the UCP term instead of at the end. Because with the compounding health care <laughs> cuts, we would have looked maybe a bit more like America with shortages of beds and things than, than we do now. Um, I mean, what is nice is that we were able to really uh, flatten the curve quite nicely, so we didn't even need capacity to some extent. But um, if you need it, like in Ontario and Quebec, at least we have it because of the public funding. So it's unfortunate that we have to point to over 80,000 dead Americans to say that their not only their whole cultural attitude towards this, but their healthcare system failed them in this regard. Um, it's sad that we have to point to that, but it's a nice way to, to illustrate that we need public health care. We need public funds. We need to make sure that the government can respond to things like this. I mean, I think fundamentally, and I, I alluded to it at the top of the episode, which is the, the, how important myth-making is for, for societies to continue to operate, the belief that the government is in control, um, the ideology that drives how the economic system is established. And I don't mean myth as in sort of like, you know, like ancient Norwegian myths of like Odin and, and Thor and all this kind of stuff. No, I, I mean the um, the type of social constructs that we've established for each other or for ourselves that sort of guide the way in which we operate. And this is actually for me why austerity is such a, in, in my mind, such a horrific evil because it's totally unnecessary and it comes from a place of malice and disgust for the people that the powerful regard as lesser than them. Yeah, I think that that myth angle is kind of talking about how we use storytelling and um, 
and narrative to con- construe and construct a sense of meaning in the things that we do. And of course, austerity is a big part of that. And um, yeah, I think we ought to be constructing maybe a different kind of mythology that, because uh, I'm of the opinion, the philosophical opinion that you can't uproot the mythology, but that you should construct a different kind of narrative about who you want to be and how, how you, you know, what makes you good as a nation, what, what success means, and that's what we ought to do. You gotta, you gotta steer the ship to clearer waters. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I'm pretty proud of the way we've responded to this, as you can see by the things we're going through in, in this section, that I'm pretty proud of how Canada's uh, taken on this issue and how we've leveraged our public institutions to do that. And unfortunately, though, especially in Alberta, it's not all, all kittens and rainbows. And admittedly, uh, and this is something I've noticed in my work with the post-secondary, is that the province has done pretty much nothing, pretty much nothing. It's been mostly a a federal response to try and stave off the worst effects of COVID. Um, And that couldn't be more true than what is now conflicting with the COVID disaster, which is the oil price crash. Yes, which which did happen about, um, well, just a little over a month ago, but we're still dealing with the ramifications and it's an event that we, we've wanted to explore for an amount of time now, so. Yeah, and this is something I'm really excited to get to today. So um, it's perfect that we're getting to it at this point in the podcast. It leaves us a lot of room to talk about what's happening to employment in Alberta, what's happening to our budget, how much is oil struggling? Um, what are the overall economic implications for Canada and the world? I believe Canada is the third largest oil reserves of any country. Makes sense. We've got a lot of land. A lot of it's still in the ground, I think. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that's why I say reserves. I don't know about production, but in terms of reserves, we're the third largest. And so how do these things affect our future and what's going to happen with the oil crash? I'm, I am really, really excited to get into this because we're seeing some really fascinating uh, turns of events. And you have to remember during this conversation, we were already experiencing some pretty significantly bad unemployment, uh, partially due to pretty bad oil prices that we already had. But now things have just gotten worse. So there's this compounding uh, effects that are combining together to make everything a lot worse. Also with a lack of a diversified economy. And I know I, I knew... And how much of our budget is made up of oil revenues. Exactly. And we're obviously referring to the primary economy because there's always, I've noticed there's some clever clogs that always comes up with a, with a tweet with the infographic that's, uh, oh no, when you compare our sector breakdown of 2015 versus 1985, it is diversified. And to anyone who's contemplating posting that infographic, I will just ask you to read up on primary and secondary economies and get the fuck out of my face. It's a great point, actually, yeah. Yeah, that's important to know when you're looking at those, just the sheer numbers. You have to put them in that context. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so unemployment numbers. We were already, Edmonton was already the number one city in Canada for unemployment before this all started. Woo! But now... We're number one. <laughs> <laughs> just like USA, number one for COVID deaths. Just like Oilers, number one in the... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and so... Just like uh, Edmonton, number one in terms of public transportation. The premier Just like Edmonton, number one spot for art development. And what were we number one in anything? I guess in, in terms of sheer amount of territory in the Central River Valley taken up by golf courses. Well, you know, we were also number one for unemployment. Shit. And Alberta 
could be on track to being the number one province for unemployment in the next few months. Woo! So the premier announced I mean, on boo. April <laughs> on April seventh. The premier announced the projection is for a twenty five percent unemployment rate. Now that's one in four, which when you think about it that way, you're looking at four people on the street and one in four of them is unemployed. That's astronomical. Currently, what we're at, so it's not confusing. What we're at now is almost 15. So we're at 13.4 when the number was taken uh, in uh, April. Uh, I believe if the trend is continuing, we're above that by now. But the last recorded number we've seen in the news media is 13.4% unemployment. Edmonton and Calgary are both well over 10%. And um, what this all means is that Alberta is the third province for unemployment in the country. So Quebec is number one, Newfoundland number two, but I wouldn't be surprised if we get number one pretty soon, alluding to all the other number ones that we could or would or aspire to be. At least we get one. And so um, we've talked about this before, lost jobs over the UCP's term. There's been quite a few, but not quite as many as there have been in the last couple of months because we have lost, as a province, 117,000 full-time jobs in March and another 243,800 in April. Uh, and that's on top of everything we've already lost. So, And again, this is mostly to do, obviously, with you know the closing of stores and non-essential services and people being laid off as a result. Uh, but it must be said that we weren't exactly uh, riding high before, before this kicked off. Like Before this, it was one in five men between the ages of 18 and 35 were unemployed, right? So... Because they obviously were trained in a very specific industry, and then there was no other work for them. So, yeah, I mean, like we said, to that's why it's important to outline that context. If it was already bad, it's just gotten worse. And um, to give our Alberta total of thirteen point four percent and our numbers that we just listed, you know, a few hundred thousand in the Canadian context, um, the Canadian totals are nearly two million lost last month. Uh, and that brings us to about 13% unemployment nationally. And if you want to compare that to the United States, they've lost 20 million in the same time span, uh, which is, uh, has brought them to 14.7% unemployment. So theirs has been worse uh, as a number, of course, but also as a percentage. And um, yeah, I just want to harken back to our January 2nd episode. I believe it was episode six, where back January 2nd, pre-COVID striking North America, We had Edmonton at 8% unemployment. We were the number one city in Canada. Calgary was number five in Canada for unemployment at 7%. Um, And we'd lost, you know, roughly 20,000 jobs in November, another 20,000 in December. And um, a very strong proportion of that was public sector jobs that were jettisoned by, by the UCP. And that's one thing that actually these numbers right now are hiding. They're hiding the amount of like educational assistance for instance, that have been laid off by Adriana Lagrange after promising that there wouldn't be any of these layoffs and were the only province that did things like that. They were probably going to move towards nurse layoffs next. But of course, after the whole uh, Shady Shandy episode, uh, the real Slim Shandy, something tells me that they're going to be a little more a little more cautious. And we'll get to that in a moment in terms of what this pandemic means for, for our culture. True, yeah. I, I think with the amount of scrutiny on the health ministry right now, it wouldn't be possible to do the kind of layoffs they originally would have planned on doing. And I want to quickly talk about OPEC 
because we saw in the headlines, you know, soon after the oil price completely shot the bed, that we were supposed to get a deal, some kind of cutback, a historic cutback, the most in history um, from OPEC in an agreement with other producing, with other oil producing nations to get some more supply demand um, balance between the incredibly lowered amount of demand and, uh, and the supply for oil. And so we talked about the Russia-Saudi price war last time. You can Google it. You can listen to our last episode uh, to get some deets on that. But basically, as a response to this price war, which um, ultimately uh, caused them to disagree on doing an oil cutback and then prices tanked, they eventually came back to the table and everyone's agreed to do a cutback, right? So this is now no more. But it was done. It was put in place. They did this massive historic cutback, and it did not work, which to me is completely fascinating. Well, because everything, I don't know if you've, if you've looked up the, the data or the information for how full all of the reserves are, but the world literally exceeded its on-land storage capacity to the degree that they had to charter oil tankers to store the oil, and now they're just drifting in the ocean, <laughs> fully loaded with oil with nowhere to go. <laughs> yeah, and actually there's a uh, an article from the Jakarta Post that outlines some of the discrepancy between what you're describing, how much they have to produce, and how much demand there is. Um, there, there's one... Uh, These num- numbers are fucking crazy. Oh, they're insane. <laughs> there's, there's one number that suggests that the imbalance between supply and demand could be 30 million barrels per day. <laughs> and this, <laughs> this, this cut um, was predicated on about a 15 million barrel per day discrepancy between supply and demand. So it's about halfway to what it would need to be to be effective. So they've put in this, hist- and keep in mind, this 15 billion, uh, sorry, 15 million barrels per day is the figure we're using, million barrels per day, is the biggest in history. It's historic cutback, and it's not quite halfway to what we would need. And then you've got Rystad from Norway with an even worse prediction, suggesting that uh, oil, price, uh, oil demand will hit 21 million barrels per day this month in May. And uh, the average normal demand is 100 million barrels per day. <laughs> so <laughs> dropping by 80 million. Damn. Yeah. Damn, son. That's a hell of a, that's a crash diet. And then just to cap it all <laughs> off, the the uh, the IMF has now said that uh, they expect oil prices to remain well below $43 throughout 2023 due to persistently weak demand. So, and this is this is average oil prices, right? And Western Canadian Select is obviously a lot worse than the average. So, uh, yeah, they expect that the oil recession is uh, going to be about uh, 3 years long. <coughs> Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. So you actually pointed this out to me. The oil price crisis hit its zenith when our oil started trading at negative prices. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember this? It, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I pulled up the numbers because so it this this becomes one of those like complicated like financial instruments thing where there you have to understand what a future is. And what a future is, is it's a contract that's signed that guarantees that a commodity will be delivered at a location for a given price. And it's usually what you see when you hear about oil prices. When people are referring to oil prices, they're referring to futures, which are these contracts. Mm-hmm. 
due to the incredible squeeze due to lack of, of, of demand for the product, we saw Western Canadian Select, which is our sort of like, you know, uh, synthetic type of, of crude oil. It hit a bottomed out low of negative $37 per barrel. Negative $37 per barrel, which means that in order, and this is an artifact based off of people basically like selling off their contracts to other people. Right. And it kept dipping and dipping and dipping and then it dipped into negative territory, which is literally like, if you want me to take this contract, you're going to have to pay me for that oil. I didn't know this was possible. I, it Well, it has. It's never happened before. It's not possible. <laughs> and so realistically, nobody was paying people to take their oil because as we established, all of the storage was filled. But what this basically demonstrates, this is an artifact that demonstrates that this is no longer working. That this way of operating our economy, this way of trading this commodity, this commodity in general is no longer sustainable. And what's interesting is that now we've recovered to 20 to $25 per barrel of Western Canadian Select, which is probably in part due to slight uptick in demand. It trends very closely with a Western Texas Intermediate as an index. The OPEC thing had to help a smidgen. Yes, but the reality is is that even at $25 per barrel, which is kind of the high end over the last week, that is still well below the very minimum, which is $45 per barrel to be economically feasible, never mind your profit margin, right? And only one company is able to produce oil at that price, which I believe is Suncor, if I recall. It might have been Shell before, but I think Suncor bought the facilities that were responsible for, for that. Uh, the rest, it easily has to be about $70 per barrel for like CNR and for uh, Imperial and for others. For it to be profitable. And Synovus for it, for it, well, just to get it out of the ground. Yeah. So, and we have a provincial budget that we haven't, have you seen a, a return of the provincial budget? Like as in a re-estimation of the, the Of costs? the revenues, yeah. And I thought when they revisited it to add that healthcare money in the expense side, I thought for sure they would revisit this, but I do not believe they did. I don't did. Think believe they did. And in that budget, they are predicting oil to be at $58 per barrel. Yes. So so we were at negative. Now we're at 20. When they drafted the budget, we were at about 40-something. <laughs> and the budget says 58 per barrel. Yeah. So basically, our, our oil is still completely just locked. And not, 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 not landlocked due to, like, foreign-funded environmentalists in California, but landlocked because nobody's going to buy it because... Or, sorry, we're not going to produce it because the cost at which to sell it is too low to justify that expense. Absolutely. I mean, the number they put in the budget on our revenue side, which calculates our revenue in our official provincial budget, is fantasy. Completely made up. Yeah, and so, I mean, the the number is a total pipe dream, and we've now seen oil fall ha! apart. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so, I mean, if I could just rapid fire you the impacts here, some other impacts of the crash we've seen in the last couple of days and weeks. Um, AIMCO lost $4 billion on their investment, most of which is pension money, uh, into oil and gas. Uh, Canadian oil producers are shutting down output, reducing it by rates of nearly 1 million barrels per day. Uh, Enbridge is now storing oil in our largest pipe network instead of shipping through this pipe network. Oh, my God. Uh, Tech Resources has left CAPP, the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, because the membership fee is too much on their expense side for them to handle right now. 
and probably uh, not a very good investment at this stage, given that they put all of their eggs in the conservative basket and it's just been dashed to the floor. Exactly. Yeah, not a good investment Cap, at all. I think Cap is one of the most evil corporate entities that has ever formed, at least in the Canadian context. So it's crazy. Yeah, and the last, the cherry on top, the mwah, chef's kiss. <laughs> Canadian oil and gas drilling forecast has been revised to the lowest level in 50 years. So the 2020 Jesus. forecasts were showing 3,100 wells in this year's forecast. A number hasn't been this low since the 2,900 forecasted in 1972, and this is a 40%, or to be precise, 38% drop from last year. Yeah, there's $7 billion canceled in investment in the industry so far this year. Hmm. If there's that much canceled investment in the industry, within the industry itself, probably something that we shouldn't be investing in. Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, this ties back to what we were just talking about. Someone should tell the premier that. I don't know if he caught the memo. He listens to the oil companies, so, you know, maybe, maybe, who knows. Yeah, yeah. And this ties back, this bad investment ties back to what we were just talking about a moment ago, this pipe dream of of the the numbers and the revenue side in our current budget. And uh, and we've got some pretty disturbing numbers now in the Alberta budget. Um, Alberta is expected to post a record deficit. We are going to post an absolutely massive deficit, which doubles the average of the NDP deficit over their four years in power. Whoa. Double the average. Whoa. Yeah. That's impressive. Exactly. And I mean, you got to remember that $20, $20 per barrel instead of the 58 projected, there's a reason that we're suffering on the revenue side. Mm-hmm. They completely botched the numbers, right? Yeah. Um, even before COVID, they were going to be on par with the NDP deficits, but now we're looking at, you know, double. And that's why for anyone who's cheerleading the TMX and associating Notley's name with it, uh, pump your fucking brakes because you're about to get caught in the crossfire when that fails too. So don't pretend as though that, oh yeah, Notley managed to get us a pipeline. They managed to get the TMX expansion. It's just like, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. Don't, don't, don't do this. Don't, do not do this to me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And and um, we're looking at a potential $20 billion deficit mm-hmm. being possible. Mm-hmm. So, so that's where we're at. Um, it's kind of disturbing. This is from the premier himself. I mean, the premier comes out on April 7th saying we could get a $20 billion deficit, saying these oil prices are going to be happening for the next year and a half. And, uh, and they're being forthcoming about it because there's no way around it. This is the kind of numbers that we're facing right now. And these are the timelines for oil, the oil collapse, right? I keep hearing in the news media this talk of a day of fiscal reckoning. And I think that's kind of what we're facing right now in Alberta. Yeah, our, 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 the sins of the past have finally come back to haunt us. Absolutely. Um, you were talking about the, maybe one of the brighter sides of this, the, the Elizabeth May and Yves <laughs> Blanchette comments in the parliament. Well, I, I think it's a little, I don't think it's strictly related to them. I think it's a, a little more, more broader than that. But I think, I think if there is a bright side or maybe a silver lining um, to the sulfurous black cloud, which is that this is, as we mentioned at the head of the podcast, the thesis is is that this is a tremendous opportunity. This is a reset button, an entire economic slowdown upon which now we have to navigate its restarting and its reorganization and the method in which it is to be established. That is 
a once a once in a lifetime, a once in a century, a once in a millennium opportunity. And probably not once in a millennium. That's probably going too far. But definitely a once in a century um, opportunity. It's certainly and, not something I expected to happen this year. You it, know, exactly. I didn't see this coming. And so you you alluded to what what May and Yves Blanchet said. So that's the leaders of the uh, Green and and the Bloc Québécois at the federal level specifically. Um, they they did proclaim that oil is dead. I don't go that far. I wish, but I don't go that far. But it does strike me that it is on life support. And it does strike me that their follow-up statement where they said, do not bail out these companies is probably more important. What it demonstrates is a shifting of the window of conversation, this Overton window as it relates to oil and gas politics, where now we can comfortably discuss not making any further investment or bailout based off of a conservative economic responsibility argument which shouldn't need to be the case. You should do it for the reasons of the climate. You should do it for the reasons of democratizing the energy grid. You should do it for the sake of, of cutting down on pollution and airborne particles and all that kind of mess. But, oh, well, if this is what it takes to get more people onto this side of the scale and finally tip the balance, then here we are. And that's actually something I'm very excited about because to me, this is the more persuasive version of that point because you have to consider how your points are being received by the other side and if you're making the argument that it's no longer economically feasible which it's not that is the persuasive power of that is tremendous it's something that we haven't had the ability to to say um as powerfully as we can say it now in a very long time Mm -hmm. exactly and uh, yeah, so I mean, there's there's a bit of, of a bright spot here, a bit of good news that we can look at transitioning away, that we can look at reevaluating the economy. I think the CERB is a good example of like filling in people's wages when their industry dies and then transition them to a new industry. You could use a similar model for a, a Green New Deal, for example. And I mean, while we're on the the bright side topic, I think I'll say that I am... Pretty excited about Alberta announcing a huge infrastructure investment project. I think that's a great idea. And then the feds announcing an orphan well cleanup project. I think that's also beautiful to see that the federal government has announced a billion dollars and the province two billion in um, orphan well cleanup for the federal money and infrastructure investment for the provincial money. So lots of good amount of money going into creating jobs and things that are necessary and sustainable, which is nice. And I mean, if you needed a sure sign that oil in Canada is dying, this may be it. I'm just going to read you the last quarter losses for, for oil companies in Canada. Ooh. The largest of which was Suncor, which lost $3.5 last quarter. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. You've got uh, Enbridge losing $1.4 billion. You've got ExxonMobil losing $301 million. Through Imperial Oil. Specifically, their subsidy. That's correct. You've got White Cap Resources losing $2.1 billion. Vermilion Energy, $1.3. These ones are interesting. Synovus Energy and Husky respectively lost $1.8 billion and $1.7 billion. And the reason I like these is because they announced this alongside their last year same quarter profit. 
So last year they made 110 million and 328 million. The margins are so small. Exactly. The margins are are tiny. And this year they've lost nearly two billion each. Somebody had told me that um the the big problem with uh with uh, uh, some I think he was referring to uh, Can- Canadian Natural Resources CNR is that for every billion dollar in profit requires 30 billion dollars investment in terms of manpower and infrastructure. So you have a huge liability in terms of your equipment and, and personnel, unfortunately, on, on the personnel side because they get laid off. But just to be clear how tiny these margins are versus what you actually have to invest in it to make it feasible. And this is just this is what working with tar is like. It's fucking hard to work with. Bitumen is a shitty substance. Back when we were in it's the conventional true. oil days, it was, you know, it was it was butter on toast. Just spread that shit anywhere. But this stuff is it's not like that. It used to be it like... Is, it is it is tar. It used to be like poking a pinhole in a water balloon and it yeah. just gushes out and you get it nice and easy. I mean, some places they still have very simple extraction methods, but... And even then, those aren't cutting it anymore. Like, we're way past peak oil. Now we need to do, like, fracking and horizontal drilling and all, the, and all of this is, you know, very ecologically damaging. And not only that, but it is... Um, it's ecologically damaging and it's very expensive. Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, bitumen is not bitumen is not what Alberta politicians like to make it out to be. Yeah. Then they say that oh, the tar sands is, is a slander. Uh, no, flip that. Tar sands is accurate. Oil sands is a misunderstanding of of the process. That's why it, ca- it takes so fucking much to take it out of the ground. Frankly, calling it oil is good marketing in itself. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> no, as we've established, and we'll get to this in a moment. Um, you always have to take what these people say with a grain of salt. So as we've alluded to. Uh, the pandemic and the and the corresponding economic downturn is a real opportunity to move forward on energy transition and the transition of a, to a more stable economy in general. Never mind the environmental reasons for doing so. But like, you know, you want a planet that you continue living on. You want air that doesn't hurt to breathe. You want children growing up without risk of developing asthma and, and multiple sclerosis and shit like this. So the economic stability rationale weirdly has now become the most compelling piece. And that's unfortunate and demonstrates the short-sightedness of humans. But if that's the case, then so be it. I'll take the persuasive power of this. Yeah. You know, if, if it's happening now, I will take it. Yeah, I will. No kidding. Uh, and plus, oil is like literally non-renewable. So <laughs> you're going to have to change at some point. Why drag your feet? You're going to have to figure it out eventually. You might as well do it now. Just rip the Band-Aid off. Don't, don't, don't trudge it along. We've, we've been hurting for, for far too long. We already mentioned um, what Elizabeth May and Francois-Yves Blanchet had to say about pronouncing that oil was dead, which, as I said, Bit of a hyperbole, but that's damn good politics, I'll say, especially um, in parts of the world that aren't that aren't uh, imbibing the faith of the petro state. I, I'm pretty sure the Quebec Bloc Québécois base loves him for that. Yeah, probably. Um, but not only that, but the Norwegian Norges Bank, uh, which manages the investment of the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, has now blacklisted a number of Canadian oil and gas producers for their unacceptable greenhouse gas emissions. I took a look at the list. This includes Synovus, CNR, and Suncor, notably. There's probably more on there. And that's true. 
Um, and also, I just want to acknowledge the media circus that's taking place around this and how the UCP spin doctors are in are in full force right now. And, the, and their issues managers have taken to social media to talk about how, oh, this is hypocritical. They're just going to go back and invest it in their own oil and all that kind of bullshit. That's probably true. But it is also true that Canadian tar sands production is literally the most carbon-intensive hydrocarbon extraction process on Earth. And yes, the UCP consistently and frequently lies and misleads about that. And yes, it is a filthy goddamn lie because we know it's not true. But let's not pretend that that's the only reason that Norges Bank blacklisted these countries. Let, let's give them, let's give the, the conservative side of this argument, the petro state, the petro fundamentalist side of this argument, some credence. There's, this is not the only reason they've blacklisted these companies. They've been doing similar things to coal based production since 2013, is when this list started. You know what they also do? Same thing with nicotine, tobacco. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think it's more about the downturn and sudden trend towards insolvency of these companies, which was more of a convenient excuse to score some green points with European media. I don't think they, I think they, they probably saw the writing was on the wall and said like, maybe we can capitalize on this. It's an interesting and strategic blend of pragmatism with idealism because then mm-hmm. they can espouse the ideal mm-hmm. while still being despite, extraordinarily despite pragmatic. Being, yeah, despite being both boots in for, for the entire production cycle. Yeah, because let's not forget how much money Norway yeah. has made off of oil. Yeah, let's, let's not forget, right? So as I said, there were, so the, there is some hypocrisy there. No one's going to say that there's not. But then again, Nor- Norway is a social democratic state with incredibly low rates of homelessness, a diversified information-based uh, economy to a large degree these days. They have begun the process of transitioning away. And while it's true that they are continuing to drill for oil, ultimately Norway is but a very tiny state in a very large world with countries that are you know, if you don't give them the oil, they will find a way to come and take it. So you're probably better off figuring out a way to enforce that yourself. True. And if I understand correctly what sovereign wealth funds are supposed to be used for, like the Norway one and the Saudi one, Mm -hmm. a lot of it is so that when oil dies, they have the opportunity to get out of it because they have so much liquid capital to invest. Yeah. Although apparently Saudi Arabia is fucking that up too. (laughs) They're not able to actually invest properly. There's a couple of stories about that that we don't have time to get into. Um, So... I, I, I kind of alluded that there's a bit of a media circus, and I, I, I kind of, I'll admit, I've kind of been signed out of Alberta politics recently, which is surprising because we've talked for probably a little over an hour at this point about Alberta and oil politics. But honestly, I've been, I've been pretty signed out because I just don't give a shit. I, I'm so tired of the lies. I'm so tired of the obfuscations. I'm so tired of the mistruths while people are suffering. I just don't, I just don't trust our provincial government, and so therefore I don't really listen to what they have to say. Um, But there was one very specific statement that I kind of honed in on that kind of raised like a, it sort of raised like a pimple out of, out of the, out of the, the skin of the social (laughs) conversation. (laughs) What, what a what what a what a allegory that is. I like it. Yeah, I, I like that. And I like I, that metaphor. I, I just had to get in and, and, and had to get in and pop it. I had to squeeze the pus out and see what was in there. Oh God, <laughs> I don't like it anymore. <laughs> and and it was a very specific statement from the Atco Limited Chief Executive Nancy Southern. And I have a quote here, which quotes is um, 
So she, she's referring to um, the, the Norges Bank thing. She's referring to announcements from members of like the European Union that they're going to be investigating the possibility of a green restart, whatever the whatever, you know, how true that is. I don't know. Um, but basically, she, she's quoted as saying the following in an interview following a press or a presser or something, which is, quote, I believe it is short sighted. I just see a piling on whether the, it is the credit credit rating agencies, whether it's government leaders, whether it is the universities jumping on this bandwagon. And I think it is time for people to stand up and demonstrate true moral leadership about the fact that the world is better because of petroleum products. Uh, she also pointed out how Suncor and CNR vowed to be net zero carbon producers at some point, which is like you produce a compound that is burned and releases that carbon into the atmosphere. So at least you have the incredibly expensive carbon carbon capture carbon capture technology, which they've been talking about that for four decades. It's never going to happen. Um, it's literally impossible for the type of development that they do. And then Suncor has a 30% carbon intensity reduction target by 2030, which would still make their oil extraction process more carbon intensive than pretty much any other process on Earth and maybe fracking. And even then, I think it would still be more carbon intensive than fracking. And with the way that we've talked about Western Canadian select oil prices going the last couple of years. Do they really think they're going to make it to 2030? <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> That's optimistic. It's like whenever uh, an elected government in their four-year term announces like a 20-year plan, and it's like, oh, come on. Like, yeah, yeah, that's like... Unless um, you're the progressive conservatives in Alberta, you're not going to make it past, you know, two, three terms. Uh, yeah, <laughs> shit. Yeah, my God. Oh, it's fucking good. Um, but but I, I read this, and first of all, never mind the persecution complex that's going on here. Never mind the complete straw manning of, like, intelligent people who see the writing on the wall. Like, we commented in a previous episode about how Moody's downgraded our credit rating oh, because yeah. of lack of revenue in the provincial economy and specifically of the government. Well, and tech resources... Themselves. They, said it, <laughs> they pulled out of Alberta in, in an investment project because they didn't see it being worth it. They said it was not economically feasible. Yeah. And now we have these companies posting these huge losses. And then the universities. Like, I'm a researcher who studies um, greenhouse gas is in general i study one particular greenhouse gas um and i can tell you that we're not jumping on a bandwagon we were literally the people who are saying that this is a problem and if we don't rise to meet it huge swaths of the world will be rendered uninhabitable if not the complete like extinction of human life on earth right yeah. so but you know those university types they just jump on bandwagon yeah bandwagon. We, just, we just jump on bandwagons we're, we're not known as like thought leaders or as the, the 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 first the first signs of warning or things of this nature and not only that do you know who actually at least in regards to as it relates to the um the climate change issue do you know who one of the very early um industry people who recognized that it was happening was no exxon Mobil. Huh. They had paperwork going back as, as early as the 1970s where they acknowledged that their release of carbon into the atmosphere was driving climate change and that it was scientifically proven and that it represented a threat to their operation and their, lo and their longevity. Hmm. Mm -hmm. But I really want... Well, I have heard stories of them, oil companies themselves investing in oil alternatives when shell they shell is thinking, a big example of this yes yeah when they start thinking that it's going to fall apart yeah shells are shell has a huge amount of renewable and battery technology uh investment they so, should invest in lithium i think they are 
I think they are. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but I really want to hone into this part of her comment, which is, quote, and I think it is time for people to stand up and demonstrate true moral leadership about the fact that the world is better because of petroleum products. Um, and I decided to, to play a little game. And I want to see how many examples of the ways petroleum products have made our world worse. And I typed this up literally today in the morning before we recorded this episode. And this is what I came up with just off of the top of my head. So we have plastic waste. This includes things like the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. This includes microplastic contamination, which is a probable carcinogen. Also, landfill space from plastic waste from urban spaces. I'm sure you can think of other examples of the way that plastic wastes are, are detrimental. The, the burning of them also releases carbon into the atmosphere and also releases a ton of other carcinogenic compounds as well. Yeah, fun fact. I heard the guy who wrote the first paper on microplastics, who essentially discovered and published on them, uh, he was on CBC and, and he was giving a really good overview into how damaging they are. It was yep. pretty fascinating. The accumulation stuff. into sea life is crazy. It's like mercury. It's wild. Yeah. It's like mercury. Yeah. Um, there's myriad oil spills, including, in my mind, still most notoriously the Deep Horizon oil spill from British Petroleum in the Gulf of Mexico, which is still having effects on the ecosystems to this day. You can still go to the estuaries, uh, uh, kind of around Louisiana area, and there are still plant life just coated in oil. Um, and it's also on the, it's, it's a fucking mess. There are constant spills into the North Saskatchewan that we can actually see from my river, right? Or from my window right here. And actually, did you know that oil spills in the North Saskatchewan are so common that they have testing sites upstream, EPCOR does, so that when the spill comes into where they collect the water that we drink, they actually shut it down so that they don't collect the oil. Did you know that? incredible. Yeah. Um, there's a leaking of tailings pond compounds into the Athabasca River, which is now proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's been leaching into the water table there for decades now. So there's all of that. Well, Fort Mac also has a boil water advisory in effect. I don't know if that's related, but... It's not related, but it is ironic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There's a literal explosion of natural gas pipelines and processing stations that happens more often than than you think there was one recently in virginia there was one in british columbia that's actually the result of a lawsuit there's a nat- there's an indigenous band there that's suing enbridge actually over it um and then there's climate change we all forget about climate change mass migrations crop failures ocean acidification mass extinctions my heat personal, waves that kill people my personal favorite is tripling the amount of displaced persons yeah. uh, in the next several decades mm-hmm. and and there's way more effects than that but that's just a smattering of things like florida will be underwater right parts of vancouver will be underwater that's just sea level rise oh good crop failures alberta last year was literally the single worst year for alberta crops as a combination of market factors due yeah. to the closure of china and and crop failures as a result of extreme weather and climate-induced change. Yeah, sorry, that sorry, is human-induced climate change. One of the deans of my university harvests something. I think it's like hay for his horses or something because yep. he's on, on an acreage. Yep. He said it's the worst year he's had in decades. Yeah. Um, this is more of an indirect effect from petroleum products. But what about the wholesale political corruption, the kind that the UCP government is most known for tax evasion well, and the american government and the american government and lowering of environmental protection standards um which actually speaking of the ucp they just did that they used covid as an excuse to stop environmental monitoring that's kind of a clever one 
Not really. I mean, <laughs> COVID won't let us go and monitor the environment. Is, do you think that's clever? I, I kind of like it, you know, like social distancing. If you get teams of people going out to do the job and you just mean, say you like can't have the like teams. It's like two get... people in a remote station. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, there have been wars and coups and murderous economic sanctions against nations with oil that refuse to cooperate with, uh, you know, mostly Western imperial interests, including Venezuela, Iran, Iraq, and others. And for those nations that weren't predated upon, you got Saudi Arabia, which, nice, nice one. One of the most prolific human rights abusers and genocidal regimes on the face of the earth. Good thing that Trump uh, allegedly gave them uh, information on how to make nuclear equipment. That's going to be... That's going to be interesting. They're too fucking stupid to figure out themselves. Yeah, lovely, isn't hillbillies, it? Hillbillies. Hillbillies they are. Uh, Arab- Arabian hillbillies. And then the last note I have here is, again, to reiterate, climate change for fuck's sake. Like, you can't get around it. And actually, funnily enough, um, what, one of the uh, senior administration from, from my institution wrote an op-ed all about how oil and gas was going to be part of the economic recovery and not climate change wasn't mentioned a single time in that write-up and if you can write up about the recovery without writing about climate change i know everyone forgot because of covid then like but but you got to talk about it it's the single most important issue like my children will be dealing with its effects same thing as the news media (laughs) they tend to skirt around it yeah right they don't talk about it very much no at least not with the seriousness that they should be no but, I mean, it's becoming pretty quickly undeniable, the, the nature of it. A few more forest fires destroying Canadian uh, cities, and maybe we'll, maybe we'll get there. Sorry to interrupt everybody. Mark here in the post-production cycle. I just wanted to make sure that we were undercutting any clever clogs that might wanted to come up and say that, oh, well, what about plastics? Oh, what about fuel? Oh, what about all this? Isn't your computer made out of plastic? Doesn't don't you drive a car? Do, 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 do. Um, yeah, the, the, those things are true. Yes, uh, plastic is. Uh, I'll admit it, it's a pretty amazing material. When you think about its characteristics in terms of durability, the ease of production, the way it's very important in helping keep food fresh, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, we will acknowledge that. Of course, hydrocarbon fuels are very good in terms of their energy density and their ability to enable long distance travel. And, you know, until recently, their relative stability and affordability. Of course, that's going to be an open question going forward. So it's not that these products are not good at all, but to pretend as though they don't have consequences or to somehow assume that the side effects of utilizing these products is to be ignored or doesn't actually completely counteract their utility well that's just that's just a bad joke to be honest with you so um for anyone who's thinking along those lines a uh, nice try uh try again next time uh and here we go um so again this is all coming from a comment from a woman who said that oh uh, the, let, let me let me grab that quote, which is um, the fact that the world is better because of petroleum products. I don't know Mrs. Southern personally, but she's either sounds 
she sounds super corrupt, I think I think is one way of putting it. I mean, obviously, she's from the industry. You have to take everything she says with a grain of thought looking at it through that lens, that she has an invested interest in this industry continuing to operate in the way that it has operated and views anything that's not at CoGas, specifically natural gas utilities company. Um, she views these other industries as a threat, and she views it as an existential threat, mostly to her bank account, I would guess. So she's she's definitely sounding corrupt, but she does also sound um, pretty pretty ignorant. Pretty ignorant that either she doesn't know what's going on, or she's turning a blind eye to it, or she's ignoring it, or she is like just kind of a dumbass. And I don't uh, like who knows. I'm gonna guess it's. I think that if you can climb to the top of a corporate ladder like that, you're not stupid. But is being corrupt any better? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, they both have the same uh, end results in this scenario. So which yeah. one is better, right? True that. Either way, you're advocating for a, a business to continue that not only is extraordinarily environmentally damaging, politically corrupting, um, all in all a bad deal, but also is now no longer really viable anymore, at least not in the way that it was a year ago or 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's just there's <laughs> a lot of the air has been let out of those tires. And uh, we see this industry deflating uh, completely around us. And I, I'm like, frankly, like as a poli sci guy and a, like a very you know keen current events observer, I'm just fascinated before mm. before I'm worried or scared or um, concerned. I first start with fascination. I am very fascinated by the way that these things are rolling out right now, and. Uh, it's going to be a new economic reality for Canada, for Alberta, for oil producers in general. And I'm interested to see kind of what the implications of that are. And I think we've laid out quite a few today that that are going to happen, things that are going to be realities uh, cu- coming up. And and uh, and there's a lot of mystery that we'll, we'll wait to see the, the answers to. But, you know, a lot of it's starting to come into focus here, I think, pretty clearly. And just to reiterate, this is a moment of, of pretty immense change and, and potential. And depending on what we do with it, we'll set the stage for our livelihoods, for our quality of life, for our children's quality of life moving forward. So I think the question that I would encourage everyone to think to themselves, would you rather be on the side of the people who are trying to bring us forward or would you rather be one of the people who are holding us back? I know which side I'm on. (laughs) Absolutely. There's a thing I've heard of a concept called path dependence, where once you get on this one, this one way of doing things, you can't let it go. Mm -hmm. And I would rather not just do it because of momentum. Right. And this is the time to reset that momentum. So absolutely. The opportunity is tremendous. I have I have no faith that our our provincial government will be the, the kind of people who will do it. But I think that it's ultimately out of their hands. And my hope is, is that they will be strong armed and forced to change or they'll just be voted out. They'll just be removed and maybe we'll get something that'll bring us forward. But I think ultimately what's what's good is that at this stage, it's out of our hands. It's out of Alberta ha- Alberta's hands. It's out of the UCP's hands. And that's a good thing. It's good that they are now completely out of control because that can only be, well, it's better. I can't say it can only be a good thing, but it's certainly better than them being in control. I'll put it that way. <laughs> Absolutely. Good stuff. I think that's 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 enough for, for one day. Uh, you know, that was a lot of fun. We'll wrap it up there. This has been The Underside. I'm Mark. He's Sean. Uh, ciao. See you later. <laughs>